Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Den of Sin, a movie podcast with Devin and James. I am your host, James. With me, as always, is my uh, uh, the 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 Batman to my Robin, the uh, Skipper to my Gilligan, uh, Devin. What's going on, Devin? How's it going, little buddy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this thought just occurred to me because I don't hear it when you and I talk, but everybody who listens to it hears us. We need mm. to re- re-record that anchor ad because that was really rough. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so apologies to all of our listeners for uh, the, we'll record a new anchor ad, but that thing's just been sounding ugly for too long. <laughs> is it an audio issue or is it a talent issue? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this. The audio is fine. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> I, and, and, not... and actually, you were fine to be more precise on it. Uh, I, I clearly have never advertised anything before, so I, I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure you're being generous, but we will happily record it uh, and uh, <laughs> fix our mistakes. One of many, but it's fine. We'll we'll tackle that mistake first. Sounds like a plan. So, how have you been, James? How's the uh, last couple of weeks since Halloween treated you? Just very busy. Very busy. Uh, it's busy time of the year for my company. For my for my job, my day job, started some new artistic endeavors, which I have to keep mum and shush about currently. But outside of that, yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, It was announced yesterday uh, that Japanese Netflix is producing a brand new Gamera series for for Japanese Netflix. Uh, And if you know anything about me, I love monster movies. I love giant monsters and, and kaiju and tokusatsu, but very also very specifically, I love me some camera. So I am very excited. There hasn't been uh, a new camera in a very long time. Um, there's been one movie since the nineties from the uh, very legendary, very well beloved. He say gamma trilogy. So uh, we've had a lot of Godzilla since then, um, especially in the last few years, animated Godzillas and American Godzillas, Japanese Godzillas with a brand new Japanese Godzilla also on the way um, announced. Uh, but my boy Gamera guardian of the universe, friend of all children uh, hasn't had his, hasn't any love sent his way. So there is a new series coming out that I'm very excited about. So that was the highlight of my week. What about you, Devin? Oh, pretty much the same around here. Uh, work has been busy. It's going to be picking up, but uh, ironically, we're going to have some time off for the holidays too. So it's this this weird mix of everything's going to like crash to a halt for a little bit, but intensify in busyness when we're there. But it's good because I like my job. So there you uh, go. <laughs> I, I look forward to doing well, which is something I can't say about every job I've had, especially around this time of year. So uh, I'm doing all right. I'm actually really excited to talk tonight about these particular movies. We we've chosen a well, it, it's kind of a an interesting delineation of subgenres that goes into the <laughs> the two movies that we're watching tonight. And and as usual, when we say double feature, we usually mean three or four movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about two mainly, but we'll touch upon yes. possibly some others. Uh, but yeah, it's an excited. These are two movies that the two main movies we're going to talk about. I'm a big fan of. There was discussion as far as what we were going to do this episode, and I thought like we haven't really done. We've done a lot of horror, and you know, it's a, that's a subject close to my heart. Uh, I would love. There's a few new horror movies that I would love to talk about soon that have come out recently. I have strong opinions on both good and bad, but we have been doing some horror. It's been the Halloween season, so as you said, let's let's stay away from horror. 
And I was like, you know, we haven't done a good crime movie, and there's a lot of great crime movies. I suggested a few, but you came up with the the, the duo that we'll be talking about tonight. And then as soon as you mentioned it, I was like, that is perfect. Uh, one of the movies. Well, we'll get into it, but uh, why don't you tell us, tell them what we're talking about tonight, Devin? All right. Well, the movies in particular that we're going to be talking about as our double feature officially are 1981 Thief and uh, 2011's Drive, uh, which uh, most people will probably be familiar with Drive. It made a pretty big splash. And uh, Thief has really only been kind of brought up as a major achievement in the last, I don't know, maybe decade or so. Uh, About that, yeah. I mean, it was was, uh, given a a positive critical reception when it came out. And yeah. It, it uh, certainly, you know, it did all right at the box office as well and it made its mark. But I, I think it, it just kind of managed to somehow slip through the cracks for a while. And now it's it's coming back. And I think Drive is actually a, a big part of why uh, Thief had a comeback. What I find interesting, though, we, we, we agreed to do a couple of crime movies. But I was thinking these are crime movies. They're also specifically neo-noir movies. Yeah. Which not every crime movie is a neo-noir. No, <laughs> and they're also heist films. Uh, Thief definitely being a heist film, and yeah. Drive being more than tangentially a, a heist film, although it's not quite a, as much about the heist. No, uh, the heist is more of well. I will say actually, in both of them, the the heist really isn't. It's what the heist brings about. Yeah, um, it's, it's not like Ocean's Eleven though, where like you, the movie is the build up to will they make it, and then the heist itself is the big climactic scene it's it's yes. more it's more the people involved in the heist in particular uh two major characters in in each movie but there was another thing that another factor that folded over into this that i found interesting when i was re-watching them and i was going to ask you if you think this is a sub sub genre of sorts uh but the concept of one last score is there such a thing as a one last score sub sub genre I mean, I think a lot of crime movies have that as a sort of reoccurring theme where it's like, I think in most where you have the protect, where the protagonist is some kind of criminal, professional criminal specifically. I think a lot that idea of the last heist is, you know, and it's it's usually used as sort of a pipe dream, like these guys like these anti-hero characters are holding out for this one last high so that they can leave behind the world of crime. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure if we, I would say it's a sh- subgenre. I might say it's so such a common portion of, of crime films where like the crime, the crimes themselves are being committed by a sort of anti-hero guy. Uh, somebody who's trying to leave the life behind uh, is that's a common, not trope, but it's a common element in, in crime stories. Uh, where the... But I wouldn't say, though, like like there are differences such as um, the, the previously mentioned Ocean's Eleven. Somebody at some point, like I'm sure Carl Reiner at some point says I'm out, you know, but uh, but it's not really about a, a melancholy sort of. Uh... Well, that's, and that's the thing. Yes. Well, that's and, and, the thing. It's... And then there's things like Goodfellas that has like three heists in it, but is not a heist movie. No, yeah. And and then there's and it's not necessarily heists either. Like one last score would also encapsulate something like uh Superfly, where he's, That's true. he's trying to make one one more uh last score on, on a big drug deal rather than heisting anybody. Uh and then uh you know, leading to the thought that like what what is the reason for it being the last heist? Because there's lots of 
outside factors that can make something a last heist. The character dies or gets locked up being the most normal ones. Yeah. But the reason for a last uh, heist or a last score would be, as you mentioned, trying to get out, but can also be already out and blackmailed back in. Or as we see in in uh, at least one of these, kind of a, a favor to a friend to help somebody out being yeah. pulled back in. So and doing the one last thing in order to like help out that person. So I feel like it really is like a a sub sub genre. And I I don't mean to put it down by calling it a sub sub genre. Oh, no, no, not at all. But like, yeah, like as a fan of film and and lots of things, music, like if you're really passionate about things, I think it's natural for people to want to categorize things and put things labels on things. Not to restrict them, but to help define them and find like, you know, minded uh universes where you know if you like this movie this movie has similar themes and similar like uh it's the human algorithm in a way <laughs> yeah exactly absolutely and i think like i think because though i will say too i think the neo-noir which is a which in itself is sort of a prickly sub-genre to begin with because we can get into that even later what like our filmmakers like specifically was michael mann trying to make a neo-noir i would yeah i Anyways, well, we can get into that, but uh, it's definitely there's what I love about these two films specifically is um, so much of what they have in common is also what makes them really different in in lots of ways. Um, They almost like flip sides of the same coin. Um, There's a lot of very similar themes and stuff, but it's definitely, you know, drive, you know, being the more modern film, you know, very much more in the public public consciousness. Drive. I haven't looked it up. I mean, I know Nicholas Winding Refn is a huge fan of film, and he's uh, he. I'm sure he's gone on record as saying what his influences are on this film. But it's very obvious that it has the drive his DNA that was, if not inspired directly inspired by Thief. It definitely it's borrowing from borrowed movies that were like. There's definitely a, a, a some kind of inspiration there. I would I would not be afraid to say. Do you know if on record? Because I didn't do any research on Drive. I, I feel like I uh, Drive is a movie I've seen many, many times. It's hot in the theater. I was, I'm actually a big fan of of Refn. Um, if that's even how you pronounce his name, is that how it's pronounced? I don't think that's, I've ever heard it. That's always how I've heard it, but I'm not. Okay. I don't know. If it's not, sorry, Mister Refn, or however. I'm not listen. Dutch, so I don't know the proper yeah. pronunciation. Maybe, but. Like I know I I'm a huge fan of Only God Forgives and I know that movie was very polarizing um with most people I know uh not being in the positive camp I happen to love Only God Forgives I actually I think I might like it more than I like Drive um I like to I've I've enjoyed all of his films to lesser degrees but I do think Drive is his most accessible his you know is is probably his most successfully translating or successfully capturing whatever he was trying to do because while i enjoy only god forgives that i think the message was very uh maybe not as clear to most audiences of what the point was or where where he where where he was really trying to take that movie but i i'm a big fan of it regardless but um uh to me to me it's pretty obvious but you know when they talk to other you know um people have seen it it's, i guess it's i guess it's not as 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 obvious as it like it seems to me but um and i might be projecting things. in fact it's very possible i'm projecting things that weren't intended but either way i do like his films but i do think drive is his most accessible movie um and definitely his most rewatchable for most people um yeah. but with that said 
I'm actually more as I, I'm a big fan of Drive, but I think I'm actually a bigger fan of Thief. I agree. And uh, well, let's let's get into it. Let's let's get into Thief. Let's go chronologically here with uh, sure. Thief coming out in 1981, as we mentioned, directed by Michael Mann. It's actually his feature debut, although he had done the Jericho Mile on TV at that yep. point, which was where he actually garnered a lot of uh, inspiration for his script for for Thief. Thief, of course, uh, also is a starring vehicle for James Caan, who we didn't really get to properly eulogize. Eulogize, yep. So so many people have left us this year. It's just if if we had kept on the path we were going, we would have been doing nothing but tributes this year. So we That's absolutely correct. I was going to say that same thing. You know, luckily this one came up. It wasn't even my intention in mentioning Thief to do a James Caan tribute, but it kind of works in that respect because I think this is... I think this is James Caan's best role. And I say that I, being a dedicated Godfather fan, but I never, ever thought that James Caan was what made the Godfather special. No, no. in uh, fact, I feel he's like... Great in it. He's great, but he's, yeah. he's clearly not the focus. No, and I will actually say, re-watching some of it, I, it's it's in both ways. In one way, it's it's he's at his most James Caan. He's giving a performance that's really in his wheelhouse, what he's really good at. But there's also this sentimentality and this sort of vulnerability to Frank. The, he plays a character in Frank. There's no last name. He's just Frank. Um, but there's this vulnerability there. What he wants, his relationship with his mentor, which we'll get into that. But he's really kind of, I've never, I, I don't, I'm sure if I looked at other roles, I would see similar things in the roles. But I just have a vision of James Conn in my head of doing strictly kind of like these hard asses tough guys kind of like dudes with chips on their shoulders and there's definitely those aspects to frank but there's just these moments of vulnerability like which we can talk more into you know when we get into the plot but i just it's i it's my favorite role of james Conn. it's my favorite uh you know character he's played too i mean it's, again he's a starring role for him he i mean he's in you know all of the scenes basically so like yeah he's so, so but it's movie but the whole cast is great. I mean, literally, um, we'll talk more about the extended cast in a second, but the entire cast is great. But he, it's a great starring vehicle for for uh, James. Yeah, that's that's one thing I'll say in common about uh, all the films that I know of that we're going to speak of tonight. Uh, they're they're all really incredible ensemble casts. Yeah. But at the center of each of them is one distinct performance. Yeah. And in this case, like we said, it's James Caan. Uh, and I think... I, I agree with you. I think he has a kind of sensitive intensity. There's yeah. There there's this uh feeling like he's gonna explode at any moment, but you don't know if that's gonna be violence or tears. Yeah. And you can see him at times just struggle with what he's gonna do next, not in a you know, universal sort of what am I actually going to do next kind of way, but <laughs> Like you can almost see him trying to figure out, well, what's the next thought I should have now that I know this, now that I have well, this information. And uh, there, he's a, no, go ahead. ahead. Well, there's particular scenes, and I'll I'll just say what what they are now. There's there's a famous diner scene between he yes. and Tuesday Weld, who is the love interest of the film, and we can go into that in a second too. Uh, but there's also a uh, a well known. Uh, what what is it called? The I don't want to. He wasn't at the orphanage. He was at whatever social service. Yeah, go to, to, to trying to adopt a child. To adopt, yes. And that scene 
while I give the diner scene the the credit for being like the the more powerful acting moment, yeah, the scene where he's yelling at the uh, social worker, I found equally heartbreaking, even yeah. though it was volume turned up and you know he yeah, revealed said- as much of himself there when he was trying to be a hard ass as he did when he was trying to be vulnerable to Tuesday Well. I think both of those scenes are super pivotal. I think for two specific reasons, though. I think the scene in the diner with Tuesday Weld is you're seeing what's important to him. Like, we're seeing him, the internal him, what his motivations are, what he wants, his vulnerability and all that stuff. He's sharing his this idea of the perfect life that he he sees for himself and the, everything that he cares about. So we're seeing his motivations. Yeah, he even has a see- vision board, like, 40 yeah. years before there's an Etsy or any <laughs> exactly exactly and it's very heartbreaking and stuff that you see that and in that scene where he's trying to adopt what you're seeing is what the the sort of theme of the film about people who are sort of trapped in life and they're you know sort of seen as undesirables in fact I think that's even a line in it where it's like it's a, there's definitely a pessimistic tone in the film and it's a yeah. lot about people tra- like people who are being manipulated people who like are trapped in the they're trying to play the game but they're always going to lose and you know people are trying to play by their own rules and think that they're you know um they have this freedom but they don't there's there's a lot going on in that scene about you think that you can get out but people are still people will still pull you back in people still have power over you and you know, he he wants to live life by his own rules, but it just doesn't work that way. And uh, it's really hard. I mean, that scene is I, the the diner scene is just I mean, it's a great performance. I think, like you said, acting, it's probably, you know, there's two scenes when he see when he goes to visit his his mentor played by Willie Nelson, who's fucking great in it. Um, right, I always wonder a few minutes he's there. He's yeah. Amazing. For the very two few short scenes he's in, it's he's fucking perfect in it. Um, but there's this there's that scene where he you see really see the vulnerable vulnerability side but that scene in in the diner is great but to me that scene in the orphanage breaks my heart because it's just so like you know you can see like yeah it's just it's really honestly it's it's a movie that's very stylistic cinematography i think i mean i love michael mann i do think michael mann suffers you know a lot maybe like you know ridley scott where it's like is he he started off strong and maybe the as his films went on he didn't i mean some might say heat is his masterpiece i wouldn't necessarily agree with that but anyways to me this is just like a perfect movie like it looks perfect um it's i mean just the sound i mean the soundtrack which we'll get into as well but it's it's anyways my point is that it's it's got all these like very stylistic things and these long shots of like them doing the robberies which is so real and feels like it doesn't feel like movie. It feels like you're watching a documentary on these, you know, these safe crackers and, and robbers. But there's all this really sentimentality and heart to it, which I I, ha- well, I don't have many criticisms for it. But I'll I do have some criticisms towards the end of the movie, which we'll get into. But but anyways, Khan's performance is phenomenal. And you really get to see this guy who is a very, a, very strong willed, very competent. I mean, he's a amazing professional safe cracker. Even he has like these like. You know, I only raw, I only steal diamonds and cash, and like that's it. And like, he's just very like, you know, he's he, a very he focused. And he doesn't use guns, and he doesn't use yeah. guns exactly. But he's great with guns, though. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, but yeah. So, anyways, there's there's this element to like this like very traditional kind of noir 
crime story but it's also got this weird sentimentality and heart to it that like i you know i maybe i didn't wouldn't have expected first watching it you know again it's weird to see a, i mean it's all this guy wants is a family he wants a wife and some kids and he wants to you know move to the ocean or whatever like he's just yeah he's yeah he, um, want, he wants normalcy like to, he wants normalcy to rewind just a little bit for anyone that hasn't seen thief and and doesn't know what we're talking about in terms of the diner scene in the orphanage and his vision board yeah. and all this uh frank is a uh a former prisoner he went to prison for well i, I don't want to give away too many of his reasons yet it's actually yeah. part of what makes the diner scene so impressive and so impactful yeah when you find absolutely. out what he was in prison for but he was in prison for longer than he was sentenced to be in prison for uh due to some some uh, really bad circumstances where you definitely get the feeling that he handled himself the best way he could have yeah. uh, and was, and was punished for handling himself the best way he could have. But uh, they, they do mention that he was very young. He was like 20 when he went into prison and he was in for, I think if you add up the math from the various things he mentions, it sounds like he was in his early thirties when he got out and what he essentially missed. And this is something that Michael Mann hits upon in interviews about this uh, Michael Mann having written this as well. It's, it says in the credits that it's based on a book. It's not. He 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 optioned the book because he thought he might want to make a movie out of it, and it turned into a different movie. But for contractual reasons and Writers Guild reasons, they still had to give uh, you know a paycheck to the uh, the guy that wrote it, uh, who wrote the novel that it's not based on. <laughs> not based uh, off of now. Who was in prison, by the way, for a heist uh, at the time that they were filming this movie? Which filming, yes. <laughs> Um, but uh, <laughs> well, the book is. Ba- I mean, the book was written by a professional criminal about his career as a criminal, so yes. it wasn't. Uh, that's not yeah that out of uh, the realm of belief. <laughs> but I, th- I think the only thing they have in common is that their names are Frank. But anyway, so yeah, so Michael Mann has spoken to the fact that this guy has really lost that section of his life that most of us take for granted, where we're learning how to court somebody, learning a career, you know, buying a house. I mean, we're talking about 1981 here when the the rules were very different than they are now and the goalposts hadn't quite moved as far as they are now. Uh, But but he gets out of prison and he sees how he's going to handle the rest of his life as, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a wife and I'm going to have kids and I'm going to have the nice house and I'm going to change my car as much as I change my shoes. And, you know, (laughs) He he doesn't want a humble life necessarily. He wants a, a well-to-do, like, upper-middle-class yeah. life, which is really what we all want if we're honest, you know, about not necessarily needing riches. Uh, yeah. So he just wants what the rest of us do, but it's this previous life that keeps holding him back. It's the previous life that he can't escape, and he's not allowing himself to escape it at first because it's all he knows. And uh, so he continues to to crack safes. Um, but then he finds the woman that he wants to marry and <laughs> has a rather interesting way of going about it uh, in terms of just kind of telling her, oh, by the way, you're the woman I'm going to marry. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, she really plays the hell out of that diner scene, too, where you start to get yeah. her background of where she's been, you know, where she's been abandoned and had horrible things happen to her as well. Yeah. So they, they're able to relate on this level of both kind of being at least what they perceive to be his damaged goods and yep. uh, and his struggle to be his own person, to have nobody else in charge of him uh, and going from having nothing to lose to suddenly having wife and kids to lose and freedoms to lose. Every, 
literally everything to literally lose. Everything. Yeah. This is what really jump starts the action for the second half of the movie because in prison he trained himself how to not give a fuck and now yep. he gives a fuck and like everything there are now stakes yeah. um so it's a it's a really interesting you know this is the simplified version and like i said i don't want to give away too much but it really is fascinating to watch this character and he, and he does have a couple of friends he has a crew that he works with and uh as you mentioned the the robberies themselves we open up on a heist and then there's like the main heist that is somewhere towards the um the middle or or beginning of the second you know the final third of the movie where he he cracks a safe and that is really James Conn cracking a safe and it's yep. the the consultant for the film uh his name is John Santucci Santucci John Santucci uh and he actually plays the cop in the or one of the cops in this cops yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, but uh, he was a professional safe cracker at the time that they were shooting this. And he taught Khan everything he knew and let the production use his actual safe cracking equipment. And the production bought him like an actual safe that apparently cost a 10 grand. $10,000 safe that they really cracked. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're watching this uh, for all of its really intense sort of cinematography during those scenes with sparks flying and all sorts of crazy angles and close ups in places that you wouldn't think the camera would be able to get a close-up on right exactly I'm like it it, it felt it's like one of the movies that, yeah it's crazy I, that's what I was gonna, i'm glad you brought that because there's that one scene when they drill the hole and the camera kind of goes into the hole and you see the gear mechanics behind it. that's something that you would see today would be replicated by cgi it would be a trick shot like no in like and it, it looks incredible it looks so yeah, very impressive. And to know, like I said, to know this was Michael Mann's first theatrical released film. Yeah, it shows incredible. the maturity of style there. And I, I think you called it out right. You kind of compared him to Ridley Scott earlier. I kind of put like it's it's those two and James Cameron and a couple other people that I've kind of I, I feel like maybe I've spoken out too strongly against on this show a few times just because I <laughs> I tend to want to point out they're not quite as brilliant as people think they are, but. Um, but they are really great filmmakers. So I, I don't want to take that away from them. And I've always kind of lumped Michael Mann in with them in terms of, you know, like I love a good Michael Mann movie, but if I find out Michael Mann directed something that is not going to encourage me to go to the theater to see it. Uh, it is something that not I anymore. Mean, no. Yeah. I mean, he anymore, had... yes, there was a time. Yeah. There was a time. Yes. Uh, and going um... back and revisiting this, it had been about 10 years. I mean, it, it actually bumped up my estimation of him significantly. Like now I am really dying to go out and watch a little bit of everything. I still might skip public enemies, but <laughs> I hated public enemies. Uh, I, I'll be honest. I didn't like public enemies. I didn't, everybody was saying how great the, uh, the Miami vice film was. I thought it looked cool, but I thought the actual movie itself was not great, but I mean, Manhunter, I mean, he's anyways, he's Manhunter's done great. phenomenal. Yeah. Movies. Man, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, you um, mentioned Heat, which I love Heat, Heat but and that that's I have controversial opinions about Heat. Yeah. I know I, it's, I, everybody I know loves it. I just I, maybe I need to rewatch it. I just felt it uh, felt really long when I saw it, uh, which I haven't seen it in twenty five years. But uh, but every but again, because I think I don't know if I'm just a natural born contrarian, which I probably am, but uh, taking full account. But I it was very overhyped, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, I don't know, I, this feels. This feels like a lot, but uh, yeah, uh, I'm you know, sure I would it, go back and rewatch and love it. But and we're definitely contrarians because one just has to look at how much we 
have kind of spoken disparagingly about Ridley Scott, but yet how we like go on and on about someone like Brian De Palma. It's. <laughs> I mean, anyways, let's let's not diverge too much. You're, but with that, yes, you're right. You're right. With that said, though, everything about thief feels fully formed it doesn't yes. feel like an experiment or somebody learning as they go or happy accents or anything like that like this feels like he had a very strong vision knew what he wanted and was expertly able to capture i, I, I can't go on enough about how important lighting is in this movie how everything that's ex- all the exteriors feel like uh, it just i know they're like I know he went on to use a lot of the same things in his career as far as like wets. I mean, lot, I think a lot of, I'm sure, I'm sure he you can say the same trademarks thing about, and they're, and they're here. Yeah, exactly. Like, but Scorsese man, they has are his trademarks and Spielberg yeah, has his exactly. trademarks. But he really, if, I mean, literally I, I, I'm not, it's not a perfect, I don't, I believe in very few perfect movies. Of course, like art is subjective anyways, but my only real complaint about the craftsmanship of the film is in the, last third of the movie but it's it's not even it's we'll get into that um but yeah it's a great movie it looks phenomenal it, it's one it i watched it for the first time when it, it came on the criterion channel or so it had it hadn't gotten it you know you couldn't see it for a while and i remember literally i didn't know i mean literally when i saw it i was like oh yeah this looks cool like michael or michael mann's first movie and you know i, I you know got james con watched it with no like real context to it. And I was literally like mouth. I was like, wow, this is great. I, I had a few, I didn't like it as much the very, I mean, I still liked it the first time, but it's a movie that I feel like I like it more every time I see it, every time I see it, I'm really now that, especially like once you kind of know where the plot is going and there's like you a can just sort of a Frank I discover every single time. Exa- exactly. Exactly. Yes. Like, did so you, did you ever notice that he doesn't speak in contractions? I didn't know that, but that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, he does not use contractions. Cannot. Oh, he, interesting. He would, say he does not use contractions rather than saying he doesn't use contractions. Uh, I never noticed that. <laughs> Khan and man have both talked about this, but especially Khan because he was the, the performer, but he talks about how he, he wants to make sure Frank, not Khan. Frank yeah. wants to make sure that everything he says is said clearly and that and he is understood yeah. and that he's deliberate. And, and they made a reference to, uh, I can't remember which one of them made the reference because I read it and I can't hear the voice saying it. Uh, but basically there's, there's a big difference between what's up and what is up, especially yes. if you're in prison. Yeah. So, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so he wanted to speak in a way that just he wasn't taking shortcuts and he wanted to be understood and he wanted you to know he was in charge. This is how it's going to be. It, it was part of how he clinged to his identity. And I, yeah. I didn't know that until this last time. And, and I definitely noticed it more knowing that that was the case. There's a couple of slip ups, but yeah, we're, we're oh, I'm sure. It. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I thought I I. I thought was really interesting is that you know most of the crime movies where the protagonist is a criminal or you know like if you want to call them anti-heroes whatever usually they're they're played as these sort of outsider fringe characters who sort of live a, you know very like uh um hidden life uh they're usually either scraping by or like but frank is a business owner like he's a very competent 
capable professional. Yeah, and he, he has front business. He owns a used car, or I'm not even sure if it's a used car. He owns a car lot and car he lot? owns a, a club, a, a lounge yeah. that apparently is still yeah. there. Or I don't know if it's oh, COVID, in Chicago. Uh, yeah. Yep. The, um, the Green and Hill so, Lounge. And it's very interesting because it's very probably much closer to the truth where guys who are at that level have front businesses. They have, you know, they understand that, like, not just financially, like to, you know, it's for money laundering. And these aren't things that I don't remember being explicitly said in the movie, but it's very, uh, like, feels very authentic. Like, it feels like, oh, yeah, I've never, I've, at least I, I can't remember too many films where, like, the professional criminal isn't just, that's not all, he's not just going from job to job. He he does jobs, but he has his his civilian life that he puts front, like, almost like organized crime. Apparently, especially in Chicago, where the film is set, uh, this was actually quite common. There would be there were like hundreds of like jewelry and cash heists throughout Chicago uh, during this period of time. And the the guy I mentioned before, John Santucci, who plays one of the cops in the movie, but is in actuality a thief who was the consultant on the film. Yeah. Uh, according to him, like this was very common in Chicago in the sense that you would just have dudes who you might see hanging out at a bar that you just have no idea or the regular person would have no idea. These are some of the best safe crackers and wire men in the country that are just hiding out in plain sight because uh, their crimes weren't, uh, they, they weren't running in and robbing a bank. They were going yeah. in after hours and nobody was seeing them. And they had this particular set of skills, you know, and at this point now, cybercrime has by far taken, taken over the concept of the jewelry heist, I think predominantly in storytelling and in life. Um, if if yeah. you're telling modern stories, but this was apparently very common at the time. And this leads me actually into another one of my favorite parts of Thief. And I'm sure you'll agree with me here. Uh, but the the big bad played by Robert Prosky in his first starring role or first acting role on screen. theater, theatrical role. Exactly. Theatrical He's a theater role. guy. Yeah, he had done I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> but even he's mentioning, you know, like uh, when they're talking about frank's payment he's he's talking about like well i'll put that into a strip mall over here and i'll put this over there he's he's not talking about this is how much you're going to take home he's talking about this is how much we're going to invest into industry or community or or whatever in which the money is going to get laundered and can potentially come back tenfold because of yep the economic truths of 1981 yep but yeah robert yes Fossey exactly is maybe the most He's in the top 10 most dangerous villains I think I've seen of that era. I just need to talk about this. First off, I had no idea when I first watched it that that was his first like the theatrical acting role. He, like, yeah, he was his a theater first guy. movie at the age of 50. Dude, there he firstly he steals every scene he's in. And if you've seen it, first off, he's if you know Robert Prosky, he he plays a lot of like. He's like one of those that guys where, but he plays like a lot of like sweeter characters or I, I associated him with more. He later did like, like in the Mrs. Doubtfire days, but yeah, he, he was, he was pretty creepy and Christine and stuff like that. That's true. Well, exactly. Okay. That's but yes. 100%. But God damn, there's a scene. Again, I don't want to, we won't want to give anything away, but there's a scene where he, and it's this amazing shot where we're seeing it from Frank's perspective. Frank happens to be on the floor um, so he, Robert Prosky's filmed upside down, but he's giving this, he's basically telling Robert or Frank what the deal is and what, you know, what's going to happen. 
And it gives me the chill. The first time I saw it, I was like, and I was like, oh, maybe it won't be as like, you know, impressive. The, nope. Every time I see it, it's like, it's, it's shot upside like you're, down. You're, Frank's down. POV, like the world is upside down. And right this, down. Exactly. this guy, I mean, he's essentially telling him, I own you. And these are all the ways that I own you. Exactly. Which um, I don't know if you want to get too much in it, but adoption is a big point of that. And yeah. um, oh God, it's dude. Every time I see I, uh, you rent your baby from me, I'm going to from me. If it's it's too good of a line to not. Yeah. Yeah. You, you Dude, it gives me the me. chills and it is such a great, I mean, in a, like in a, in a film, which like I said, Tuesday, Weld. let's say, I don't want to underplay her role. She's great. And the whole cast is great. And it's, you know, heavy hitters. But when every time Robert Prosky's on screen, there's a, even when they first introduce him where, Frank is trying to get his money back. He, this guy was thrown up, murdered who he was trying to fence through and the guy had his money. So Frank has to go and get his money back. And it's a really cool scene. And so, you know, um, his fence who gets murdered was trying to hate like, Hey, this, I know this guy, he wants to meet you. He's the big guy. Like he really wants to meet you. And Frank is like, I don't want no part of that. I'm my own boss, blah, blah, blah. So there's a scene when they first meet and it literally like, He's so likable and charming, but still has this air of threatening. Because, you know, you know, as a film girl, we've all seen crime movies. We all know what big bosses are and stuff. And so, but he's just so like, you want to, you want to go along with him. He seems very sweet and sincere, but there is a threatening. intimidating. Like even the way, yes, like what, he puts his leg up. If yeah. People who have seen the movie will, will know what I'm talking about. When he's first meeting James Caan and he's essentially telling him, what sounds like a like a good pitch like yeah. like yeah you know you need anything you talk to me i'm basically your father and he puts his leg up on like the side of the curb that just like oh. spreads his legs out in front of james con that is just like showing him i i don't know whether like if, presenting there's yeah there's something so just at its core creepy about his body language yeah. during that scene yeah. and and you also get the feeling that he's been you know, the way that someone would case a, a place that they're going to rob, he's been casing James Conn because yep. James Conn's father figure is in prison, Willie Nelson, uh, who he looks up to and learned everything from. And so you get the feeling that Prosky specifically knows that he's disattached from his father figure and that probably also knows that his father figure is dying in prison yep. of um, of a heart condition. And so now here he comes in using language, specifically calling himself the father. His, yeah. And and kind of trying to attack Frank in that way. It, it's it's chilling. And he's so calm and he's so collected. He's coming across very affable and like, hey, and you know, like. Who wouldn't yeah. want to do crime with this guy? This guy's not going to pull a gun on you. But yeah. The trick is you better do everything exactly the way he wants, because as yep. he puts later, I'll chop up your whole family and put them in a wimpy burger where people Good. eat them without even knowing it. Even knowing it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <it's okay. laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, Remind me never to eat at a place called Wimpy Burger, too. Wimpy Burgers. Um, one thing, though, that I have, I have to say, like I said, the, the, the film uh, has many strengths. One of the things that you know, as a fan of film scores and film soundtracks and stuff um, at the time he was making it. um, He's um, Michael Mann is a Chicago native uh, and he grew up just like every goddamn 
film director apparently who ever lived in Chicago grew up on Chicago blues and, and originally envisioned it featuring Chicago blues. And while filming it or while, yeah, while filming it, he came, he discovered the first album of Tangerine dream and then sort of went back and forth on like, you know, cause he always envisioned it with Chicago blues and that being the score and the soundtrack and really having that be a character of the film, but then changed his mind and went with Tangerine dream and Tangerine dream did the whole soundtrack. And then I guess he kind of, uh, from my understanding, he kind of regretted it. Like he kind of, after he had filmed, after the film came out, he sort of regretted not using blues and sort of went back and forth on it. But two things. First off, the the soundtrack and the score is fucking phenomenal. Um, I love Tangerine Dream, anyways, and I feel like the films that they did score, I feel like always the the soundtrack becomes such a part of the film. Their soundtrack um, becomes a character in a way. Exactly, exactly, and they add this weird obtuseness and this like. Oh, it's anyways, it's great. So I'm a fan of that anyways. But the other thing is, I feel like Chicago Blues would have dated it and also added an element. The Tangerine Dream is is there's a discomfort that like the blues are the blues, like even though they're traditionally like, you know, like we we imply sadness and, you know, whatever to it. Like there's a warmth and a uh, humanity to the blues that I feel like would have honestly done it a disservice, but more importantly, I feel like it would have just, it would have been another in hindsight, another 80 Chicago movie with a blue soundtrack, which yeah. God knows is the last thing. We- <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think it would have dated it. Uh, I, I love Chicago blues myself. Um, I also sure, love yeah. Tangerine dream. And it's interesting to say that that's what would have dated it because Tangerine Dream is so synth heavy that so, you would think yep. that that's what would date it. Yep. And, it. And it does. It does to an extent, but it doesn't date it in a bad way. It dates it in a no. way that it gives it a time and a place. But what he did with the choice in Tangerine Dream is that you know, man has said that he basically wanted Frank to come off like he was a rat in a maze, not a rat in a cage, but a rat in a maze trying to find his way out and way around and not knowing what's around the corners. And that's why he went to great lengths to make sure that he didn't, for the most part, shoot the tops of buildings and things like that. Everything is uh, labyrinthian and like that great shot right in the opening of, um, I think it's called rat alley where they've got all those uh, metal, those steel fire escapes lined up to either side of the alley. The electronic music adds to that because it sets Frank. The electronic music isn't something you get the feeling that Frank listens to. So it kind of no. sets him apart from the world that he's in. And then you'll notice at the end, and I won't give away the ending, but I will say this, the ending ends on a Chicago blues song. And I there's a lot of debate amongst fans of the movie as to whether or not this movie has a happy ending or a sad end. You know, whether it's happy or sad in general. I think that we're meant to take a little bit of hope from what happens at the ending, uh, or at least the final shot, because we're now in the blues. Frank has found himself. Frank is on his own and is free from the maze. And and also the you know, the end shot, again, this is not a spoiler because it doesn't really give anything away, but it's it's specifically a sp- a street shot, but not a city street shot. So to me, that implies that he's out of the maze, that he he may not know where he's going. He may be just as confused, if not more confused than he was prior, but he's now free of everything else. So I, yeah. I, I thought that was interesting. And that, that bit of Chicago blues right there at the end really kind of hits it for me in that respect, in conjunction with the Tangerine Dream score. Yeah, um, that's funny. I didn't even, I never even dawned on me, but yeah, that's, you're probably dead on right with that, where that, 
that juxtaposition from going to the Tangerine Dream to Blues is like maybe the start of a new chapter. Or like you said, maybe he's found himself. I will say um, the We're ending does bother me. To return to the old chapter. I don't like. Exactly. It's, yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's, it's, it's an ambiguous ending. Yeah. I have two major issues with the film. One being the very pink blood, um, which <laughs> uh, seeing it in, in you know, uh, high definitions, maybe maybe it looked different <laughs> before, but <laughs> It's it bothers it's great. I mean, the violence is very limited, but it's you know, it has a huge impact when it does happen. The violence feels like violence, it doesn't feel like cinema violence per se, but it's the, the blood is very fucking neon and it bothers me. But the other thing is, like, I do like the ending and I won't get too much into it, but it one, the movie has all this buildup and everything like the ending is like maybe 10 minutes long, like, it's yeah. very quick and it feels like even though everything happened, it feels sort of weirdly rushed. Like I felt like there wasn't enough stakes at that point. And also I have some questions of like, again, I if you don't want to give the ending away, that's I, I, I respect that. Cause I, I I'm kind of big on that too, but there are things, choices that he makes. Well, first time seeing it, there are choices that he makes that lead to the end of the film that to me were like, Oh, okay. Well that obviously means this and this being a very nihilistic, what I was going to assume was a nihilistic ending that doesn't happen. So I'm like, well, what was the intention of that story-wise and direction-wise? But again, it's not that it, I don't, the ending is satisfying in, it, in in its way, but the first time I saw it, I'm like, wait, is it, wait, that's it? Like that's, we're, we're ending it here? Not, and not because the ending doesn't feel like an ending per se, but it just felt really rushed. Like we got there really quick and it was like, oh, okay, well, but then also like when thinking about decisions that the character makes, and then the way it ends, you're like, wait, what? Why did he do A and A, B, and C if it's going to end like that? I don't know. This, but I don't want to get too much into it then if, to not spoil. It definitely, the ending is important. And, you know, it's watch the movie. If, you, if you're if you listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Thief, highest recommendation, obviously, as we've just, I mean, I think you've gotten the impression from this podcast already that we are fans. We highly recommend it. But the ending is important. And I think it's because, again, it is something that the film is, it's a discussion a very big discussion point in of this film is the ending and what it says. So, but it's one of my main complaints about it, but otherwise, like I said, it's even, I have, I, I, I still enjoy the ending. I'll say that. I, I definitely see what you mean. I, I still, I'm a big fan of the ending of this, actually, the more I think about it, because it is ambiguous. It's designed to be ambiguous, but it's also, it's of its time. And it's only a few years past, yeah. uh, say taxi driver, which actually yep. has something of a similar, like is this better or worse or you know <laughs> sort of nihilistic take on it I, and, I guess... and that's the thing that's that's not the i i love that aspect of it i love the to me it's not as ambiguous to me it feels like it is a, like again it's hard to do- talk around what happens what, but what you're referring to i think is that frank clearly feels the need to destroy some things that are important to him in order to prove to the people, to the powers that be, that he does not give a fuck. A fuck, which is and, something and, that, yeah. And it seems a little strange to to have him get rid of some of the things that he gets rid of. Um, if he doesn't. go about it in quite the destructive and uh, inconsiderate and uh, huge asshole kind of way that he does. Yeah, but, and the very final, like, there's a finality to it, so. But I don't, I think that's, like... 
that, the reason why I mention it and, and get into it as specifically as I have is because I feel like the ambiguous ending doesn't mean that he doesn't go back to that or to those people. I think that it's supposed to end in a way that we identify with Frank in the sense that we don't know what he's going to do. He's not a okay. man with a purpose at the end. He's a man trying to figure out, well, what the fuck do I do next? Do I go back and reclaim things? Do I start over in another town? It's not hopeful in that sense. It's not like, oh, the future is wide open and bright. It, it's still, wow, the future is going to be fucked up and difficult. Well, but I have my own choices to make in that rather than someone else making those choices for me. And he felt you, that it, he had to do that to protect those things in a way. Uh, and, and everything he does is to protect certain people. Yeah. The only things that get question is whether or not he ever rejoins them or not, you know? Yeah. But there is something that happens early. And basically when he first visits, Oh, I forget the character's name. He's got a goofy nickname. But when he goes to see his mentor played by Willie Nelson, he's basically saying like Okla. Isn't it Okla? Okla, thank you. God, it's such a I don't I don't like that name. I have a <laughs> tool I use at work that's almost identical and it just bothers me. Anyways, but uh where he's basically talking about like a previous relationship that just did ended and he's like, Well, I'm just gonna find a new one or whatever. And it's just like that he's used to losing things and that he wants what he wants. And he's known loss and he's just going to keep like he has this goal in life to basically have this idealistic life. But it's it's a, it's just a very interesting choice on, like you said, how he gets to that point, what he's trying to say at that point, and then leaving us with like, well, fuck, what is he going to do now? Or is is he is this? Yeah, there's a lot of questions answered, and which I like. I love ambiguous endings. I, I prefer ambiguous endings. People get pissed off at endings like the Soprano season's finale. I'm like that. I, I love an ambiguous ending. I just don't like an ambiguous well. middle like uh, yes. Halloween ends. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you can do ambiguous and fuck it up. It's especially if you sure. have an ambiguous ending and everything before the ending we're not invested in. That we're not going to spend any mental energy to sort of like from there becoming the storytellers or solve a be sort of project what we think is going to happen. The movie has to be great for an ambiguous ending to really work because you have to be invested. You have to really know these characters and stuff. So um, with that said, though, like, again, it's it's a movie that I, you know, I think one of the highest compliments I can ever give a movie is it's it, it's not just it's not even like multiple viewings are rewarding. Multiple, multiple viewings are almost required. Like the more yeah. you watch it, the more you will sort of sort of really understand that world and appreciate things. Like I said, if you see any other heist film I've ever seen, either the heists feel overly cinematic where like it's a lot of quick cuts and you're not really in the moment of like the expertise that's required or it's, you know, it's like, oh, like very dramatized, or whatever. This is very it's exactly what it must feel like to crack a safe. And it's well, like to, really to it's like. To bring up another one again, like we mentioned before, Ocean's Eleven, and nothing again. I love no, both versions I love of Ocean's too. Eleven, but Ocean's Eleven, you hope that nothing goes wrong to spoil the plot, and yeah. in this, you hope nothing goes wrong to spoil his life. And there's a difference <laughs> in the emotional yes. uh, response to those two things, because you know that George yeah. Clooney is going to be okay, and Brad Pitt is going to be okay. They just might not get the money. With yeah. Frank, he could die or go to prison or his family could die or yep. the stakes are so real. And that's because the characters are so real and that yep. location is so real. Even fucking James Belushi is so fucking real in this. I will say I almost used the, 
I actually really liked him in this. Oh, he was very, I mean, he didn't have a big role, but I felt like he was really big, big enough. I liked him in this a lot, actually. Yeah. I, it shows, yeah, it kind of shows some wasted potential in, in my book. And, and he did, but I will say in hindsight, Salvador, too. I, I will say in hindsight, though, that like, uh, uh, it is rewarding to watch him get uh, shotgunned. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, it's, I mean, but, but yeah, he was very likable. Like he, you know, it's like, especially playing his sort of the confidant role that he does, like his partner. And um, also he's the ultimate, you can't get more Chicago dude. Go than James, <laughs> James yeah. Belushi. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. <laughs> he's perfect casting on that, but, but yeah, it's, it's a great movie. Definitely seek it out. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. I heard yeah, it's it on w- Paramount Plus or maybe it's HBO Max. I, I have the Criterion disc and I recommend that because it's it's a few fantastic. years old now, but the print is still just amazing. Like it yeah. It's probably yeah, I, I watched it on the on the Criterion channel, but I think uh it's it's like on Tubi or something now. It's not, I don't think it is on Paramount Plus. Or maybe it is. I don't know. But um it, it curates around from place yeah. to place, it seems like. Uh, it's become one of those movies that like it's gonna be on there for a while because you know it's probably the rights are cheap, but it's a great movie. And you know, but yeah. With that said, Devin, um, as we start to talk about the second part of our feature, is there anything else you want? I mean, I know we talked about a, another before we talk about drive, or unless you want to talk about after another film Let's- that sort of Save it towards. Let's, let's save the other film towards the end so that we can give the full attention to Drive and we can see how much cool. time we have for the third film in our triple feature. And anyone who follows cool. these particular movies probably knows exactly what movie Not we're, really what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. But, uh, oh, and I will say one more thing about Thief, uh, just to yeah. piss you off. Did you know Tangerine Dream got nominated for a Razzie for that score? If If anything were to ever show how ridiculously stupid the concept of the razzies is in general yeah. but uh yeah that's that's ridiculous like and again first off like there was a time when the synth scores weren't considered they were considered trashy or they were considered like silly or goofy or whatever like um you know things like the italian you know j- goblin and all this like all of that stuff that that wasn't hit for the longest time. Like people thought like since we used to be cheap and quick and stuff, they weren't, you know, there, there was a time when the Carpenter score wasn't considered like the good choice or whatever. Like it's only become sort of in hindsight, hip or cool or like interesting even, but those, anything that Tangerine dream is scored or any Vangelis. Yeah, exactly. But there's, there's a Carpenter of them. Yes, yeah. He he's the most influential these days. Like even though he wasn't the first to do it obviously, like his his soundtracks fit the films he did perfect. And again, he little, you know, the 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 Halloween theme it was iconic, you know. He, it's maybe not right away. Of synth scores. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I I love it all. But the one thing I said is that to me used wisely which it was used wisely in drive and we'll get into that and how they used a uh, sort of a synth driven score which was different but we'll get into it it's about the film itself and how it fits the film and, and again you wouldn't expect a film like especially like a crime movie in 1981 it was a weird choice to have a you know a tangerine dreams theme, uh, score but in, in now in hindsight years removed it doesn't feel dated it feels completely original or it feels like natural anyways I, yeah natural which, thank you exactly that's which, actually the word i was looking for yeah which is like literally the opposite of the word synthesizer but 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, for, for a movie in 81 that it feels perfectly natural. Well, and since we're talking about kind of the, the similarities in the soundtracks, let's let's go ahead and move on to Drive. 2011's Drive, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. And I'll, I'll let you kind of take over on this one because I'm, I love this movie, but I'm sure you've seen it more often than I have. Yeah, and I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in in a while. Um, uh, but I felt like you know I didn't need to rewatch it when we we discussed it because I, I have seen it you know more than a few times. But then when I sat down, I'm like, I don't really. I I remember the overarching ending ending, but I can't remember exactly how it ends. But um, but I pre- remember the majority of it, <laughs> anyways. But um, so basically, it, very much like like the thief it it focuses around this character who has no name he's just the driver he's called the kid and you know he's that he doesn't have an actual given birth name that we ever find out yeah um, frank frank never had a last name and they didn't even yeah. give that much to <laughs> the driver no um he's he's just the driver and played famously now by Ryan Gosling um who it really was a sort of starring vehicle for him it really kind of helped break him out um and become as big as he's become uh nicholas winding refin you know who directed the feature um you know he is an interesting dude his films uh are very uh dreamlike consistently they have a very sort of uh unfocused narrative that sort of meanders a little bit and um hazy sort of reality yes there we go um and and drive definitely has some of that it again i feel like it's when i first saw it it sort of surrealist aspects of it now in hindsight with his other films seem it's it feels way more like an actual hollywood film but at the time for a film like this there is this weird underlying sort of unclear narrative this sort of uh um ambiguous so much of what's happening is all subtext and what's on people's faces and stuff and there's a lot of silence in the movie, a lot of um, very uh, hard left turns as far as quiet moments that explode into very graphic violence, which I I love, uh, frankly. But story is basically about a character who's the driver, who is basically he is a Hollywood stuntman driver for films, but he also does um, criminal getaway driving. Um, but he has these very hard, strict rules. You have me for, you know, once we get there, it's like five minutes, anything out. And it, within those five minutes, any like, I'm your guy, I'll do anything, you know, that you ask. But anything outside of that five minutes, you're on your own. Again, blah, blah, blah. He's, he's very like, he's a man of very few words. But when he speaks, his, his intent is very clear and very driven. And he makes himself, you know, he's he's a very strong character in that way. He's the strong, silent type. He runs into... um this mom and her kid and he sort of a becomes involved of, of his right his neighbor yep um exactly and he becomes sort of entangled in their lives his his boss basically is the guy that he works for uh driving you know on film and stuff um who he also does you know he does his side criminal gigs played by uh um walter white why am i blanking <laughs> brian, brian cranston, brian cranston. Um, is this sort of uh, apparently, by the way, improvised a lot of his dialogue in order to counterbalance the mostly silent driver, which it's funny. I wouldn't I thought that was intentional because it seems so intentional that he's this sort of blabbermouth guy, this very charming, 
you know, kind of a sweet guy, but you know, who's um, you know, also kind of They're like a little bit loser. of a Yeah, thank you. Exactly. I was gonna say a little bit of a con man, a little bit of a sad sack. But yeah, Born Loser is great. That's a perfect way to. And, but you know, he's this sort of mentor character who truly does like he sees Driver as a meal ticket, but you can tell he really does care about him, especially towards the end of the film and things go south. Um, but Brian Cranston's character is basically is kind of in bed with a brilliantly playing against type Albert Brooks, who plays a, a gangster. And playing not at all against type. Um, uh, oh, God damn. Why am I blanking on everybody's names right now? Uh, Hellboy. Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman. Thank you. Uh, I love Ron Perlman. I mean, I love the whole, the cast is phenomenal, but yeah, Ron Perlman, who, great. Um, Ron Perlman is Albert Brooks's partner and he is very much playing to type. He's Albert Brooks is a sort of slightly charming, affable criminal where Ron Perlman is a fucking you know, a complete asshole and very much kind of an like idiot. a, yeah, like he's that kind of a blowhard, kind of a, you know, um, kind of a stereotypical, honestly, he's kind of a stereotypical criminal. Basically, you know, the driver gets sort of entangled um, with uh, this, the, the, you know, the, his interest, his love interest. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, I don't know how you would classify her, but um, he gets entangled with this mother to find yeah, out that she, Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan, a, a very early role for Carrie Mulligan, and that he comes like he's he basically her ex comes out of prison. The father of her child gets out of prison, and it's this they have this weird dynamic there. But then, um, you know, her her ex, it's not. I don't even know. It's, they they're not divorced, right? There's just no. She, they're very in, much a couple. He he was in prison, and yeah. the driver helps her out with something and finds mm-hmm. out that her and her. Uh, I don't know how old the kid is, maybe seven or eight years old. Yeah. That they, they need help because they yep. don't have an extra hand around the house. And yep. so he steps in and, and helps and you get the feeling that a love affair is brewing between uh, the driver and the mother. And right about that time, the husband ends up being released early from prison. prison. By Oscar and Isaac. Yeah. And kind of comes in their life. And as soon as he does, he brings some shit. Sure. But you expect him to be a piece of shit and they play him up like he's going to be a piece of shit, but he's actually not. And I think that's one of the more interesting elements of the film. He's, well, he's being he, he's stuck the same way Frank was stuck. He doesn't yeah. want to continue doing bad things. But the people that put him in prison, the people that got him in prison, I should say, uh, they still require that he that he worked for them. And we don't know who that is at first. And we, we discover it as the film goes on, goes on, but it's, yeah. but it's not Oscar Isaac's fault. He's already done his time. He's served. He's, yeah. he's coming back. He's trying to be a good father. He's trying to be a good husband. And that's why it's kind of heartbreaking to watch the driver watching it from afar. Um, yeah. And and you see this relationship between him and Carrie Mulligan kind of continue on a, on a different level. Once Oscar Isaac is back, because it's not like Oscar Isaac was a shithead who deserves to like have his wife taken away or anything. It's, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. But one thing I will say, and I think that's the, everything about the drivers, he's capable. Like he, everything in his life, he's, you know, he's, he's a man of few words, but his action, he's, you know, incredibly efficient and capable and very talented and, but I think he sees immediately sees that Oscar Isaac is kind of a fuck up 
and that yeah. even if he Another has good intentions, loser. yeah, exactly. And even if he has the best of intentions, that he knows that once he's back into their life, he's gonna fuck it up. Um, and I think there's a part of that where he's like, you know, God damn it! Like now I have to be now I'm gonna have to take care of your family because I know you're gonna <laughs> you're not gonna be able to do it, which is. <laughs> You know, uh, from his true. point of view, very astute. Um, yeah, I will say this though, just as a side, I saw Drive in the theater, and um, I actually didn't like Oscar Isaac. I thought, and I'm not even as his character. I didn't like his performance. I thought it was very kind of flat at the time, and and kind of like I don't know. I I just did not. I was not impressed with his character, um, which is now ironic because I love Oscar Isaac and he's great and everything and. Uh, but at the time, I was very unimpressed. And I think because ha- rewatching it, and I, this is something that I was just thinking about today. Really, it didn't even dawn on me uh, until, like, you know, thinking about this, doing this podcast that, you know, about how I, I didn't really like him at first. But I think because, one, his character comes in and kind of disrupts the film in in a way that's very personal to the, to the, the plot and everything. But Yeah, he has but, to. But he but he his the way he was playing him was so much more of a traditional crime movie character where like Albert Brooks is very, you know, interesting and Carrie Mulligan's very she's kind of almost I, I feel like her character is very underwritten in the fact that she is a kind of she, a damsel in distress. And let, you let's know. be honest. Yeah, she is. She is underwritten. She doesn't have. Yeah, it's not. I will say I don't think capable of it, but she, her character doesn't have the strength of character that Tuesday Weld's character has. Yes, uh, I agree with that. And, and and Tuesday Weld, I'll even say, is is slightly, you know, a little bit of a, a window dressing sort of situation, you know, like, uh, which I don't say to be derogatory against her. That's just kind of. No. These yeah. are very male centric uh, yeah. machismo yeah. types of stories. Yes. Uh, and and actually very specifically about the chinks in that machismo. The, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so they, they serve like a very important purpose in this story. But I think that Tuesday's is written a little bit better than Carrie's in terms uh, of she has more she definitely has more talent. yeah yeah it's not an even acting thing Car- it's, Carrie it's the, how the character could have been anybody uh yeah in that exactly role. and I think in a way Oscar Isaac could have been just about anybody but I think I, I don't know as much about Refn as you do I've seen uh Only God Forgives and I don't hate it but I don't love it on the level that you do so I, I don't know his process to the extent that I can accurately say this but i would surmise that maybe oscar isaac was so bland and from another movie because he was meant to kind of be a wedge a wedge between him yeah and, and that's what i i exactly i actually was going to say literally you, that was what i make sort him, of... yeah because you can't make him too unlikable otherwise there's a good cause to dispose of him and you can't make him yep. too affable otherwise it's a little unrealistic and makes yep. you just really feel like the driver should fuck off and find his own family. Yeah. Yeah. He has to fall yeah, no. somewhere bland in the middle where you have sympathy for him. Uh, you might not like him. You might not hang out with him. And you certainly might not see why somebody would marry him and stick around after he goes to prison. But you see him trying and you see like he's yeah. just he's the one in the movie who's not spectacular, where it's Albert Brooks is spectacularly good at what he does. And yeah. even Ron Perlman for being not much more than a mean old hammer is really good yeah. at being a mean old hammer. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and then of course the driver is the best, you know? So, yeah. but, so I think some of it is maybe by design, but you might know his style more than I would. No. And I, I think, I mean, I was going to say, I don't know how well he, I mean, his neon demon is all, it's a 
female centric film. So uh, I, I won't say that he doesn't know how to write women or whatever, but I think it was. No, she, that wasn't I think, what I was implying. That's no, no. I, I, I was going to say originally, like, you know, I don't know if he how well he writes uh, female characters, because like if it, there's not a lot of meat on the bone of her character. But I think she serves a purpose. And I do also think and this might I might be trying to give more credit to it than maybe it deserves. But I think her character is supposed to be she is she is a civilian. She is just a normal lady, a normal woman who a very nice person who's trying, trying to do the best she can in the situation where the driver is leads us in completely different life. He's a completely different animal to her. He brings all this crazy violence and shit into her life that is foreign to her, even though her ex-husband is a, or her husband or what, whatever by it is by the end of the movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's, she's there to illustrate the differences in, you know, those, those two worlds, but regardless of any of that. There's an interesting say- element to it too, that we haven't really mentioned too much and that is i i feel it's less a love story between the driver and carrie mulligan's character and actually much more about the relationship between the driver and her son and her son i think well i do i mean there's definitely uh there's definitely i mean he you know like one of the best scenes in the movie is the elevator scene and you know and yeah. again when he kisses her is it an actual kiss or is it a cover strategic yeah exactly so even that's interesting and stuff and i thought about that as well but um but yes it is and that's the thing is where brian cranston's character is sort of a father figure less so than say um okla in yeah but there is an element of that um there's a genuine serving that purpose like this is this movie like we've said before is very influenced by thief so the concept that there is no okla in brian cranston's character seems impossible to me yeah yeah but, just but, but oakla but, is still portrayed as a strong individual who has been caged whereas this yeah. guy really feels like a guy who maybe could have had some greatness but fucked around with the wrong people who just he's just not, kind of a fuck up like, and he yeah it's not like he had a an injury on the set of a movie that sidelined his stuntman career no. he fucked with the wrong person who broke his fucking pelvis and now he can't be a stuntman so, so yeah, exactly. So, it's a so one, consequence that he's a loser. Yeah, exactly. And it's it it get, tells you everything you need to know about this character, and that he doesn't make those smartest decisions, and his involvement in this is not going to end well. One thing that we have to say, like I mean, needs to be addressed about this film is where, unlike Thief, where even though much of Frank is hidden, we still know a lot about what he's been through and his motivations. We know yeah. jack shit about the driver. We don't know anything about his history, where Why he comes design, from. Yeah. yeah, and he's literally a very ambiguous ghost character. And I love that. I, I love that. I remember coming out of the theater being like, in fact, there's, uh, I, I really wish I'd done more actual research as far as like, yeah, you know, I, I know I, I'm sure that the time after the movie came out, I probably watched behind the scenes and I might have, you know, I might have known stuff that I've forgotten. But I remember coming out of the theater being like, there's a scene where he basically, again, we won't give away plot points in the ending and stuff, but very famously, if you've seen the movie, he wears this fucking, uh, he wears a, ma- a latex mask as a stunt driver when he's playing this cop and he wears this mask. They don't really explain why, but I mean, you get the impression that he's using it. Uh, uh, well, he's concealing metaf- his face, but it's also uh, uh, fire protection. It's in, yeah, it's a sort of, yeah. But it's image it represents wise, his blank identity. That's what I was going to say. So that that's basically 
he's already a blank. We know nothing about him. But then when he puts his mask on, he he is completely blank. And it's like it's sort of like an uh, a to me, I left like it's a he's a comment on every single Clint Eastwood, Steve McQueen, Charles Bron. He is basically the faceless antihero. He is basically yeah. just at this point, he's death personified for the people he's coming against. But he's not even a person. He's an idea. That's basically by that point in the movie. He we don't know anything about him other than at this point, he is the reckoning for these bad guys. And there's he a is sequence. Every... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay, I was going to say there, there's a sequence towards the middle of the movie before the shit really hits the fan. And uh, it's it's a scene between the driver and the little kid. Um, they're sitting in there watching TV and there's something with sharks on it. And I, to me, I'd seen the movie a couple of times before, too. But when I saw it this last weekend, this this line really struck me as like, oh, he's describing himself. They're watching a shark a kid show with a shark on it or something. I'm not even sure they show the screen, but they're talking about sharks. And uh, the kid says something about like, oh, we're going to get the shark. And he goes, uh, why are we going to get the shark? Is it because the shark's the bad guy? He goes, well, how do you know the shark's the bad guy? Yeah. The shark's always the bad guy. Can't there be a good shark? And it made me realize, like, first off, if I've learned anything from watching Jaws a million times, I know that the purpose of a shark is to be a perfect machine that swims and eats and makes little sharks. And <laughs> he's essentially saying that I think about himself. Maybe he's a good shark. He he just he's he drives, he fucks people up, and he helps the right people when he can help the right people. He's a good shark. Yeah. <laughs> and I th- I mean the thing is for him too, like at no point does he invite the violence. Even like I said, he he no. doesn't use a gun. Like uh, I feel like that's something that has become like it's because a lot of pop culture has gone on to like the, this badass doesn't use a gun, this sort of moral statement or that he's so bad he doesn't need it or whatever. But I think in this, it was just like, he doesn't invite the violence. He doesn't want, like he's, he has a skill set that he's very good at that he can use to his benefit, but he doesn't, you know, and again, he lives by these very strict rules. He only uses violence when things you know when people that aren't him fuck things up or then where he needs yeah. to but much like a shark he's not evil he's just good at what he does and uh yeah it's funny i love that I, I remember loving that in the um in the when i saw it in the theater so stylistically too i just want to talk about a few overarching themes so you know where thief is very much visual it's a visual like the city of chicago has such a huge it's placed such a huge importance on that i mean it is chicago is like a main character in it and the, the city and stuff drive is that same elements with la one thing i thought about recently too is that there's similarities in collateral the movie collateral yeah also that was directed by michael mann um which again uh, filmed using los angeles at night and the lights and stuff as a character but even with the ambiguity of the Tom Cruise character who's the villain. I know there's just, and like the driving aspect and there's all these interesting parallels that uh, I found that I I found was really interesting, but stylistically it's, you know, there's long, slow shots. There's um, the, like I said, uh, we talked about the squirrel. I'll briefly mention. So when this came, when drive came out, everybody I knew went out and bought the soundtrack. It's all this like synth wave stuff. And, um, these sort of synth pop music that was very was both retro sounding very 80s synth wave musics um 
kind of post-punky synth stuff, but also very modern. And it was really stylistically a very direct stylistic choice because I think Refn was like, okay, this movie has has sort of these vintage inspirations where there's a lot of you know older films and stuff that he's drawing in, but it's also very modern. And it just again, it, it, if you've seen the movie Drive, you immediately start you you will think of certain songs from the soundtrack and the and the synth score, and it it's very effective. Um, matches yeah. it the it's matches what you see on the screen so perfectly. There's a good marriage between those two, but where the Tangerine Dream and Thief is, if you watch the movie, the soundtrack you may catch your attention, but it's not going to call that much attention to itself. Where it's a synth-heavy score and drive, but it it calls attention to itself. It's very much it's mixed. Even you know, yeah. at this point, we're like we're post Goodfellas, we're post Pulp Fiction, where yeah, it, the needle drop has been invented. You know, like in terms of uh, yeah a term in a, in a movie, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna hit this scene and we're going to hit it hard with a song in particular. Yeah. And I think, you know, where, you know, songs with vocals, anyways, I feel like there's once a vocal mix comes into it, you start to add this other element where like a cinema score, whether it's, whether it's synth driven or, you know, classically composed or whatever, I feel like anything, once you introduce vocals in anything, it immediately adds maybe a certain context to it or people can yeah. infer things from lyrics into this so there's a different there's some context there that um is also a little different but with that said the film is very stylish very stylish it's whether it's uh in the writing with the it's in the 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 acting but you know there's one scene that i i love um towards the end where the driver goes into a strip club to uh basically start kicking some ass and trying to resolve this awful situation that he's in and he's basically has this guy on this floor and it's this very unnatural angle and this weird where he's basically threatening this guy with a hammer but we keep seeing this this like uh, under like this like worm's eye view of him holding this hammer and his like leather driving gloved hand and he's like out of frustration you keep seeing his sort of hand like gripping this hammer and you hear the stretching leather and it's all this frustrate like this he's so calm and so, like, there's no bullshit about his character. If he if he says something, it's with intention. But he's very, like, controlled. But there's where you start to see, like, the impending violence that this guy is going to do. And the, really where his actual, like, his frustration. And it's just such an interesting shot and so stylistic that it was something that I left the theater. And, like, two days later, I was just thinking of that shot and everything about that. The scene is there's a bunch of naked women around. And it's, like very unnatural because they're just sort of sitting there kind of watching this violence unfold. So it's, it's as if it's the kind most of natural like, thing as if it's just, Oh, it's, this is another day. And this time it's this person who's getting fucked up in the club. Yeah, exactly. But it's very, and in the way it's composed, it's very stylistic. It almost feels like there's a kind of comic book element to it. It's just very interesting, but uh, it just kind of in- encapsulates the film for me where it's like, there's all these stylistic choices that are made that might not be the obvious or might not be the traditional action film or whatever. And a movie is like, it's a lot of things. It's a crime movie. It's a thriller. It's a, I mean, it's an art film. It's, it's very, the, the, the vibe of the movie is, is pretty unique, even though it draws inspirations from lots of things. But, you know, once this shit hits the fan, like I said, it becomes this even more surreal, but the violence in this movie, um, I, I remember saying when I walked in, I'm like, that's probably my favorite use of over the top violence that the film needs the violence because yeah, I would argue that, Oh, we didn't need all this graphic violence. Yes. I think you see so much of this world 
is there's so much of it that's atmospheric, that's quiet, that's sort of dreamlike. There's a lot of like long scenes, slow cut scenes where there's no dialogue, it's all lot of music and stuff. So when the violence comes, it's like it reminds you that things have consequences, that these are people and like, you know, they're flesh and blood human beings and these are real decisions. And but it just I love I think it's one of the best uses of on-screen violence um in a long time, um, especially by the, the time this film came out. And what I I believe and I would argue that it's not celebrating violence. It's no. not like, oh, look how cool this is. It's this is like ugly violence. Like it's like the in the the driver doesn't want to be doing this violence, but he has to. And it's 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 important to the plot. I agree. And uh and I think it is meant to be cool in the sense that watching a violent movie can be cool. But yeah, oh there's, yes. There's there's so much style to it that it, it doesn't like I, I I wouldn't be able to think that he was filming it as a statement against violence. I think he's just trying to show in this world sometimes it happens. It's 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 to juxtapose like you said, all the quietness, but there's Yep. To go back to the shark metaphor, there's him driving around, and he spends a lot of time just driving. And in fact, uh, yep. Reffin even sold it to Gosling, or sold his involvement to Gosling, uh, by telling him while they were driving around one day, the movie is about a guy who drives around L.A. at night listening to pop songs. And that's how Gosling knew that this was the guy that he needs to hire to direct this movie. But he's driving around, and that's just the shark swimming. That's the shark going yep. about his business in the ocean, the ocean of Los Angeles, just driving this beautiful, shiny car. And a shark is going to need to eat. And whether or not, like, we're not even talking about the plot of Jaws and whether or not he's going to eat Robert Shaw. We're talking about whether or not a shark is going to eat a seal that it finds, you know, swimming around. There becomes a moment where this beautiful thing that just wants to swim around suddenly has to become very violent. And I think that's what he's trying to show. It's not a universal theme. It's not something that we all have in us that we're very quiet, no. and suddenly violent. It's this person. It's this person with, with no name and no background. And all we get to know about him is that he has a soft touch, uh, that he cares enough for this family to put his own neck on the line, to try to yep. put them back on their feet and get them out of trouble and that he's willing to go to great lengths to protect himself and the people who he wants yeah, to protect. And uh, the the elevator scene, which is both the big kiss scene and the scene where she realizes what he's capable of doing. Yeah. It's just so incredibly violent. And it's actually one of the lesser gory scenes in the movie, but one of the most violent. Uh, the Christina Hendricks scene is probably the most gory. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. I will say, though, it's pretty gory. That last shot is very quick. But if you pause it, yeah. it's pretty gnarly. Is it okay? Maybe but, maybe I was, but uh, but I mean again, it's the, moment, but... he's basically stomping, and I'm yeah. sure if you're listening to this podcast, you he's stomping a guy's face in the mud, like like not in the mud, but into sludge. It's into just a mess, like into spaghetti. Um, but that's I, I think that's what I take away from the movie though is that he he's this character like I said doesn't invite violence. He doesn't want to be in violent scenarios. He's you know he's he has very hard limits, and when he does his the jobs but he's very professional i think that's the, the word I, I think he's very professional like and he meticulous. has yeah meticulous and he's phenomenal at what he does but he does what he has to do and again he has strong self-preservation and especially like i said when it comes to protecting people but when the violence comes in it's this is what it's going to take you know it's not these clean like got one gunshot wound to the stomach and he moves on it's 
I'm going to end you. You know what? This is what it's going to take. And it's violent. And I think now the violence doesn't one of the most one of. Well, actually, few of the most violent things in the movie are done by Albert Brooks. Uh, And both are like hard to watch in its own right. He at one point, he basically he kills. In fact, it's the guy that uh, uh, the driver goes to kick ass in the strip club because he's a witness. He knows shit. Albert Brooks ends up killing him and it's a very violent scene. But um, the violence of when, you know, spoiler alert, but the violence that takes that. um, And if you don't, if you start this movie and don't realize that uh, Brian Cranston's character is not going to live to see it in this movie, you're I I don't know what to tell you, but enough movies. Yeah. But goddamn, there's this very that it's not the most graphic. I mean, the concept is very fucked up, but like it's the, the way that, the way that Albert Brooks character deals with Brian Cranston is both humane, but also very disturbing, like, and just cruel. very it's, like, it's cruel. Uh, and he, like yeah. he tells him that it's okay. There's not going to be any pain. And yeah. then it's just over. So it's like, he's comforting him on his own murder, yeah. Uh, yeah. which was unnecessary, but uh, you know, that's just the kind of guy Albert Brooks is. And I, to tie it back into thief for a second here, I have to say, yes, there are elements of Frank in The Driver, but I actually think where I see the most influence is I see Albert Brooks as being a product of Robert Prosky's character. They are these businessmen who you would pass in the street. Like, like you walk past Paul Servino or Robert De Niro in Goodfellas. You walk past them on a street in New York, and there's going to be a little part of you that goes, is that guy connected? That guy looks connected. Um, yes, it's stereotyping. I'm talking about specific characters <laughs> in these movies that we know are connected, though. But Albert Brooks and Robert Prosky both play these dudes who just look like they should be sitting at a Little League game cheering on their grandkids. And, you know, they they both are capable of this sudden violence. And it's not sudden violence out of protection for themselves in a self-preservation sort of way. It's a business as usual sort of attitude towards it. I don't do this because I enjoy it. I do this because it's my line of work. Yeah. And and I enjoy that, you know? And and in this case, they juxtapose it even wilder with the Ron Perlman character, who is the partner of Albert Brooks, but who is clearly the one who is going to fucking stomp you if you piss him off. Yeah. And everybody's afraid of him. And... Yes, he gets some people killed, but you actually watch Albert Brooks kill more people on screen. Uh, yes, and that's why I love that. I was going to say like and, that. And Albert Brooks where... goes down fighting. And, I mean, spoiler alert: yeah, these there are no surprises in these movies. These movies aren't mysteries. Okay, exactly. Albert Brooks goes down fighting, whereas Ron Perlman goes out whimpering, and I think that's yeah. meant to be a juxtaposition as well. Yep, same. Yeah, exactly. And again, you see when the first real bit of violence from their world that we see. Yeah. I love the aspect about it. And I even like that, you know, there's a, uh, they share a moment before he, uh, you know, I mean, I'll say it. He stabs the guy in the eye with a fork and then fucking keeps, he stabs him in the throat, but where they look at each other and, you know, uh, Ron Perlman sort of looks like, you know, basically shrugs and you see like Albert Brooks go, Oh, God damn it. Uh, and then he goes and gets the fork and and it's just like it it's plays against type and it, it there's a humor to it but you also see the characters and their actual relate it's just a really interesting scene um that's also very violent but uh i think 
it's it's a film that was very popular for a minute. Like I, I as soon as it came out, everybody in the world, like I said, they bought the soundtrack. But I started seeing guys in clubs wearing the gold uh, driving jacket with the scorpion, the scorpion on the back, and, yeah, that which is iconic. which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's it's a movie that still holds up. I if you rewatch it, it's still you know everything about the movie still works. Um, I heard there's so two pits of criticism though that one is fucking hysterically stupid, and the other one that kind of makes me a little sad is that one Christina Hendricks got flack for the movie because people said she was a bad actress in it. And no. Yeah, and I thought she was great. I mean, I love Christina Hendricks. Full, full disclosure, I really like Christina Hendricks. I, she's a she's just not in it much. She was billed no, as but, like a top star because she had Mad Men at the time, but yeah. it, she's fine in it. But she's just not in I, it that much. Ironically, the cast Carrie Mulligan wasn't really nobody. She wasn't well known. Oscar Isaac was not well known at all. And like I said, Ryan Gosling had done stuff, but this was the, the move, the role that really started to break him out. So well, was the notebook it, was what made him big, but this was what made him yeah made him big with yeah made made him big with uh, women thirty year old women. But uh, anyways, that's not <laughs> I've I've never seen the notebook, but it's not a criticism. But it's this was very, the movie that made him Douglas like Serkian, so I can respect it on a Serkian level. Yeah, um, but it's definitely the movie that made him cool and 100%. made him the sort of new. I I mean I always say this, but to me he's the new uh, uh, Paul Newman, but. Um, it's a fair uh, it's a fair assessment yeah the guy who's so good looking but also adds extra depth to that and you know yeah um boyishly handsome but also a good actor and anyways that's i have a whole thing um but it's funny though because like i said she was she was a big name at that time and now she's the smallest name of the whole, like you know yeah. they've all gone on to be huge stars um well, she was nominated Brooks. for an oscar for an education the year before oh and was it course, the year before i thought it was the year after i, was I believe it? it was the year before Oh, interesting. In my mind, it was after. That's weird. But yeah, regardless, uh, you know, but yeah, there was criticism. I was very offended that people were saying that she did shitty in it because I I like Christina Hendricks. But the other thing is, I remember there was famously a very famous review about the movie Drive that was really pissed because there wasn't enough driving in it. She thought it was like (laughs) this woman thought it was going to be like the Fast and the Fear. And the thing is, you watch it, there is a lot of driving. It's just not it's not a goddamn race car movie. It was marketed, which is outside of the influence of Refn or anybody who actually yeah. made the movie. The but even if you watch it, you know it's not. I mean, I watched the trailer and I knew it wasn't going to be Fast and the Furious. It was going to be like a crime movie. I don't know. I mean, not that they aren't crime movie, but it's all. Anyways, first off, if you want, if you want to watch, uh, uh, if you were, I don't want to, I don't want to dog shit on popular movies. So I'm just going to leave that one alone. But, but anyways, <laughs> um. But I still like I said, I think Drive really holds up. I think it's really uh, such a fun movie, if that's right. Like, I just I it's I every time I watch it, like it's very I just get right into the movie again. And I love the characters. I love the direction. Um, I'm sad that Refn hasn't lived up to that potential that I think a lot of people. I, it's funny because certain guys like Panos Cosmatos, uh, the guy who did. Uh, Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. When Beyond the Black Rainbow came out, people were like, well, this has a lot of kids' potential stylistically, but it was, you know, Beyond the Black Rainbow was kind of a dud and it didn't do well. And critically, people saw good things about it, but it was also very slow and meandering. But, you know, he, I think he's one of those guys that the more films he does, the more he's building his vision. And really, I don't know if you saw Cabinet of Curiosities, no, but um, it is phenomenal. If I can just sidetrack very quickly. 
what's up he uh no but panos cosmatos did and oh, it's okay. incredible and it's literally like if you liked mandy it's anyways it's it's got uh peter weller and uh oh, he's so it's great if but anyways but anyways my point is like at the time like there was these you know uh i think people thought that refin was going to be like the next like big like auteur and like this really you know but his films have come out and been more and more niche and less and less well-received and um, more divisive. But I still, like I, said, I still enjoy it. Where I don't think Neon Demons was great. I think it had a lot of cool aspects to it, but I don't think it was, I think it didn't deliver the goods the way that, you know, Drive and for me, only God forgives. But, um, but I still think he's got a very strong voice and a very specific, very weird, I don't know if it's, European. I don't know what. I don't know if it's you know his. Uh, was he Swedish or he's, he's Dutch? Dan- Dutch. Thank you. No, oh, Danish, Danish, Dutch. Yeah, Danish. 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 Um. Anyways, <laughs> I think it is. Yes, I was gonna say uh, <laughs> the Dutch speak or the D- Danish. I don't fucking know. I'm. Uh, if you are, I. If you are, uh, if we are fools, we apologize. We we need to up. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe spend less time watching movies. Maybe uh, learn more about our geography and uh anyways but uh with that said you know i, I still think you know i love drive and i, I hope he del- makes another movie that delivers on that same scale and the same that's as successful as drive but um drive is still like it, it holds up it's great but yeah i i hope so too and i think that he he showed a lot of promise and he's had a i mean his career goes back like another 10 years prior to drive as well so he's, yeah He's already, you know, got a. Did he do? State. Did he do music videos before? Is that no? He did. Um, he did Bronson in the UK with. Oh, Tom that's Hardy. right. That was his first. Yeah, that's right. Which is and, great. And he had a trilogy, and I'm. It's like a one word oh. name, but it's escaping me right now. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, um, yes. Matt um, Nicholson is in one of them, and. Uh, but yeah. anyway, yeah. So he, you know, he's he's got his style, and I think that it's. He's a, a prominent enough artist that I think it's up to the world to catch up to his style and not vice versa. But uh, it'll be inter- interesting to see how people look back on his career more than it is to see how they react to it in real time. And I think the drive will probably be consistently considered to be his masterpiece, even if he makes something better. The Pusher um, trilogy. The Pusher. And he also yes, did Valhalla Rising, which is phenomenal, with also with Mads Mikkelsen. But he's where those where like the pusher Bronson pusher the pusher films they were art like artistic but very much more European linear films like very traditionally narr- narratively driven they get more and more like atmospheric and dreamlike and bizarre yes. um, by the time it gets to Neon Demon anyways um, but thank you I completely forgot I, and again if you've never seen Valhalla Rising it's a, a movie about a Viking with Mads Mikkelsen and it is. Uh, it's fantastic. If you like violent, tough guy movies, it's like a weird art house version of a tough guy Viking movie. Anyways. Um, <laughs> now, I'll definitely be interested yeah. in following him. But uh, there, there is before we check out for the night, um, mm-hmm. I've, I've got to go in a, in a little bit. But I think that uh, there's no conversation about drive, especially if it's a conversation about drive that involves thief that can be properly had without discussing at least on a light level, Walter Hill's 1978 film, the driver, uh, which just on the face of it shares DNA with drive. In fact, I would say that drive is the love child of thief and the driver. Yes. The driver, (laughs) 
Uh, it's a very difficult film to come upon. Um, I, I believe there is a 4K coming out in Europe, which uh, it, it keeps with most 4K releases, should be a region-free release, so it'll finally have some availability here. Uh, there was a Twilight Time release on Blu-ray a few years ago, but like most Twilight Time films, a handful of people picked them up, and now you can only get them for a hundred bucks. I'm actually really yeah. glad. Twilight Time put out some really fantastic movies, but I'm kind of glad to see them gone as a company. I, I prefer the other boutique labels because I think they had a bad model uh, yes. for how they sold their things. But they put one out for this, and and I don't know whether it's just a a rights issue or whether there's a perceived lack of interest, but the driver, I saw it last night on a really crummy YouTube copy that has, I don't know whether it's Russian subtitles or what. Uh, there's a really nice, beautiful, clean version of it on YouTube as well, but it's all subtitled in German. No, it's a du- it dubbed in German. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's dubbed, dubbed in German. Yeah. So yes, it's dubbed in German. So you can get the pretty picture, but unless you speak German, you're out of luck in understanding the dialogue. Uh, and then uh, there's this really crappy bootleg version uh, that has like Russian subtitles, but you can understand the dialogue. And just so that I had it as a frame of reference, I popped it on last night, not fully expecting to watch the thing because the quality is so low on YouTube, but I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked. I watched it from beginning to end. It's a fantastic movie. Walter Hill is somebody that I've always admired um, from that era James. as well uh 48 hours and um god uh hard times with charles bronson and i i know i'm leaving stuff out the warriors the warriors uh and then my all-time favorite streets of fire we definitely uh, we need to do a a a walter hill episode because i have a lot to say about that guy your brother joe wants to do a walter hill episode and so i've been holding off for that and apologies to joe we will get to it I think we were supposed to get to it like a year ago, but people kept dying and we hadn't learned our lesson yet to stop doing uh, (laughs) eulogy episodes. episodes. But yeah, Walter Hill is definitely high up on the list of of deep dives. Um, And he's still working today. In fact, I I know somebody who wrote his latest Western. Um, So that's kind of cool. But anyways, uh, The Driver, uh, it stars Ryan O'Neill and Bruce Dern and Isabella Johnny. Ryan O'Neill is the titular driver. And much like Ryan Gosling's character, his name in the film is The Driver. Except for in this movie, it extends out towards everybody, where Ryan O'Neill plays the driver, Bruce Dern plays the detective, Detective. Isabella Johnny plays the player. The player. (laughs) it, It gets down to it. Without getting too much into details of making this into a triple feature, essentially uh ryan o'neill is a getaway driver he's not a stunt driver like the ryan gosling driver but he is a getaway driver that's his primary job he's very meticulous he's a man of few words there's not a single line of dialogue from him for the first 15 minutes of the movie and i've read that he had 350 words spoken in the movie entirely uh which is pretty incredible for uh, a lead actor. A main character <laughs> Yeah, what they did was they gave all the words to Bruce Dern, who is so bro- Bruce Dern, it is painful. I, <laughs> the way that you referred to it in a text message earlier today just made me literally laugh out loud uh, when you said Maximum Dern. Uh, <laughs> and I said that, that I want to see that movie. I want to see Maximum <laughs> Dern. Uh, and, and that's not a slight like Dern is fantastic. Dern is so good. He's so good that I would argue that maybe he's the star of this movie and the reason to see it. And 
I really love Ryan O'Neill in this. I've really loved Ryan O'Neill more and more in the last couple of years. In same, I was going to say that same thing. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. He's an actor who I've always been aware of and I've seen a lot of his stuff, but I always just kind of associated him with kind of the dickhead that he is. Um, Yeah. But, but now I'm seeing the, the talent that that dickhead has as well. And um, he's fantastic in this too, but he, he's, he's being victimized by the detective. And in this case, rather than being a mob boss, like uh, Robert Prosky or Albert Brooks, uh, this is a cop who is essentially staging an unauthorized heist in the attempts to catch the getaway man who has eluded him. And we call it, he dubs the cowboy. And it's the only time you ever hear him referred to as anything else, but the driver or about you don't hear him referred to as the driver. He's just the cowboy, but Bruce Dern plays it so over the top and, and probably doubles the entire number of words that Ryan O'Neill says in the driver. He probably doubles that in his first two scenes. Uh, Bruce. Dern yep. does. Uh, he's <laughs> that, he definitely does. He's braggadocious. He's narcissistic. He's, he's the best. And he's going to tell you how he's the best. And he doesn't care if he has to break the law in order to be the best. And he's a bully. He's making, he's, Pulling around the other cops on his detail, like the guys who are afraid of him and who are considering turning him in. But at the same time, he's so charismatic and so interesting as a personality that even these cops that are terrified of him and think that he should be investigated are kind of like, but let's see how this plays out first. Because what if he's right? What if staging this unauthorized robbery does get us the kingfish? You know, what if it does get us this driver who has been making a fool of us for whoever knows how long. Uh, and the dichotomy of those two characters is really what plays out for the, for the rest of the movie there. There's maybe a love interest element to Isabella Johnny, but not really there. There's deleted scenes of them kissing, but I don't remember them ever kissing in the actual film. It's also inspired by a lot of the same stuff that inspired drive and, and thief as well. Like uh, Jean Pierre Melville films, like the French gangster films, films like Le Samurai and Le Cirque Rouge, where, these career criminals are so stylish on top of being so meticulous. Yeah. That's just everything about this movie is fun. And I have to say the car chases, I'm saying this as a huge fan of Burt Reynolds and vanishing point and even the fucking blues brothers, all things car chase related. This is the best car chases I've ever seen put on film and not a single second of CGI not a like it is all stunt drivers on the Los Angeles streets doing incredible shit. And it's not just the cinematography. Like you can see the drivers doing their, their thing. You know, you can see the moves. There's a fantastic scene. It's not even a car chase. It's just him demonstrating how he can drive to a potential client uh, where he takes the car around on a, in a uh, parking garage and just tears the shit out of the parking garage. And it's thrilling, even though there's nobody <laughs> chasing them. And this film also very tellingly was was created for Steve McQueen, who would have been fantastic. And Steve McQueen, without having been in any of these films that we've talked about tonight, is kind of the granddaddy of all of these performances. That, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was offered to McQueen and McQueen turned it down because he's already done too many car movies, which he has a valid point. Yeah. Um, he's even in the- Walter Hill. I guess Walter Hill was even boat. like- yeah, Walter well, was like, "Damn it, I guess I can't, I can't argue that." So yeah, <laughs> uh, and um, 
a couple of, of uh, quick, interesting things uh, that I thought you might find interesting. Uh, Bruce Dern, the part was originally offered to Robert Mitchum, which would have been a very interesting and very different film. I can't say that I'm dissatisfied with the choice that they made. Um, Mitchum, him, Mitchum was the one who turned them down. So it wasn't like they chose Dern over Mitchum. But I think Mitchum was already tired at this point and would yes. not have given... Like his performance would have been fantastic, but it would have been much more closer to the standard of the time. Whereas Bruce yeah. Stern seems to be transcending. Uh, you yeah. got, you got to see a little bit of it as well, right? I did, yeah. Probably, probably maybe about a third of it, maybe maybe a little bit more. It's I it's it's funny because I I won't have time tonight, but literally tomorrow it's it's on my agenda to basically do what I actually even told you, which is watch the German language version on youtube with no audio and then play the, <laughs> the <laughs> correct audio on my phone because but yeah i mean i loved every second again uh, i i happen i love isabella johnny she's a very striking woman and like i said very perfect for that role this sort of um uh not even femme patel i don't even i mean she's seems like she's like i don't know she's She's not an accomplice. I, I don't know how you would even really describe her character, but uh, she, I've she's... seen the movie and I don't know exactly how to describe it under those terms either. She's not quite the love interest. She's not quite she's... an accomplice or a partner. By the third act, she's a little bit more established as part of the plan. But yeah. but it's not how she or the driver intended for it to go either way. Go. Yeah. I so... looked up. So I did. I, I looked up the plot and stuff. So, uh, I, and I will say, you told me you'd, you'd mentioned the Bruce Dern thing, and within like literally five minutes into the movie, you're, I was like, "Oh, I see what you're talking about right away." Like, uh, it's all these def- fun lines. Yeah, <laughs> but again, it's like he's, you desperado, Rado? cowboy, cowboy desperado. <laughs> he just fills the screen up with his his <laughs> whole personality and his attitude. But uh, yeah, the the one thing though. Um, I feel like if we're going to mention these, those films, um, I feel like to bring it back to modern, I, I read that Baby Driver was very yes. influenced by the driver. Um, so in a way, I feel like it would those four there's, movies there's Easter eggs in Baby Driver that reference things like the release date of the driver, uh, things like yes, so his his, his yeah, I read so. that his jumpsuit. Yeah. Um, now I will say I'm not. Uh, I'm very conflicted on Baby Driver. I think it's actually my favorite of uh, 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 Wright. Um, Edgar Wright. What's it? Edgar Wright. Uh, who's he's another one of these guys who I'm like. I think I'd like to have a beer with him, or or I don't even really drink beer, but I'd like to have a coffee with him because he seems like a very cool guy that we probably have a lot of similar interest in. But weirdly, I'm not a huge fan of his films. Uh, uh, Shaun of the Dead is fine. I think it got overhyped and I think like it's one of those cases. That's maybe not fair, but I, I just don't think it's as funny or as original or as clever as other people do. Uh, I I truly dislike Scott Pilgrim, but that's there's yeah, also... I never liked that one either, but no, it yeah, it's, it's yeah, it has a very strong following. I don't even like the comic book it's based off, nor do I like not going to get into it, but I'm not even a fan of the guy who made the con. So it's all these things. But I, even though I don't really like, and I think Baby Driver is maybe more sizzle than actual steak. And I think sometimes he, he wants to really hammer home all these like pop culture references or all these. And it's like, well, the movie I has think, the. I think it's because people look at movies like Thief and especially The Driver 
and think that those are also style over substance when they're anything but. Oh, absolutely. And that's, a, I mean, if that, that would, I, anybody who would lob that, I would say is completely off the mark. Again, I haven't seen much of the, uh, all of the driver to make the statement, but if you were to say that about thief, I would say you're completely wrong. Yeah. I think that movie is so much complexity and there's so many layers. Um, even hearing Michael Mann talk about it in, and with the thought that he put into it. Yeah. That, that I feel like that'd be completely off base, but I'm sure you're right. I'm sure people, especially at the time, although I do think, like I said, um, even though Thief isn't a film that's in the popular lexicon these days or a film that people talk about now, it was successful and, and it was very well regarded in 1981. So yes, it, was. Um, it just somehow slipped through the cracks. Uh, unlike baby or uh, unlike the driver, which was a flop. And yeah. uh, people have said repeatedly, if it had been Clint Eastwood or Steve McQueen, this movie would have been, been understood and it would have been huge, but because it was yeah. Ryan O'Neill who doesn't look like Eastwood would have looked mean. McQueen would mm -hmm. have looked cool. Ryan O'Neill has a tendency to get yelled at by Bruce Dern in a way that makes him just look like he's sad. And yes. <laughs> like he's just sad being yelled at by this cop. But I think that that's incredibly effective. Like I think yeah. it's the right look. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's well, I, I it's funny because, the the parts that I was watching, and like I said, I told you before the podcast, like I was listening to it while working, so some of it I wasn't even watching. But Ryan O'Neill's character, the dr the driver, has this sort of like he feels kind of put upon, <laughs> like yeah. he's like he's the, he's not like this like bravado guy. He's just kind of a you know like yeah, he looks a little put upon, but it, but in a way that's interesting and stuff. So like I said, yeah. I mean, I was never not the biggest friend. The film, it's just not yeah what people what expect you, yeah. from a movie star. Yeah, exactly. Or especially that kind of role, this sort of like, yeah, uh, yeah but but very interesting. I, I In fact, I, I feel like some point this year, I am going to do a, a film festival and watch all four of the films together. Um, and maybe some others, maybe others that might tangentially tie in too. I know uh, the actress who plays a, like the front desk at like some sleazy motel, she plays the same character in, I don't know if it's another 48 hours or 48 hours. So oh, yeah. I, I read that. Uh, yeah, I think so her name like, is Frizz in the movie. Like it's a Frizz. That's right. Yeah, it's that's a right. character who creates this sort of uh, man multiverse in a way. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is brilliant. I love that. Or, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Walt uh, Hill. Walter Hill. Hill. Yeah, that's. I knew what you meant. Walter Hill multiverse. But uh, <laughs> but anyways, anyways, Devin. Um, well, we might as well end it here. We've we've uh, I think we've exhausted our audience's uh, uh, interest in these films um, at okay. this point. Well, I, uh, I will say, let's come back after you've had a chance to see the driver. Oh, One absolutely! Yeah, days, we we will do the driver in all of its grandeur. Like, well, we'll, we'll do I'll say what we'll do the Walter Hill episode. I was just about to say, we'll we'll save it for the Walter Hill. Um, because again, I, like I said, I will. I want to get your thoughts, and uh, I certainly want to get your thoughts on how you think it influenced drive and drive. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I feel like the second I can buy a, you know, whether it's a 4k or, or whatever, and I, I need to I, own it as well. So. I looked it up just prior to this. And for the first time, I don't know how long this information has been out there because I've wanted to get this movie forever because of its reputation, but there is a 4k coming out in Europe. So uh, and 4Ks, keep an eye out for in it. theory, most 4Ks, not all 4Ks, but most 4Ks are region free and are able to be played in the United States on any 4K player. So I, need I am to, going to I, get I, that. And once I need a you new, and I have uh, both free... seen it in a yeah. in a beautiful print on 4K, then we'll do the Walter Hill episodes. Well, yeah, then and we'll 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 get into the driver because I I'm excited let's, to get let's into see. some maximum Dern with you. 
Yeah, like maximum dirt. I want a T-shirt that says maximum dirt. <laughs> um, uh, maybe maybe uh, since you have a connection, maybe we get old Walter Hill on the episode. Maybe that's a nice pipe dream to think about. But uh, uh, I mean, if we kiss sure at, my, I mean, I'm not even sure my connection could get me this connection on as a guest. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's a guy that I work for, not uh, who a I, guy I that actually am not. Yeah. I have not met him in person, but I've been on many a Zoom call with him um nice as a as a group <laughs> he, he knows well who i will I say and i know who he is that's that's about as far as it goes i mean, it's just cool that you know somebody that wrote a movie for walter hill um I, I was excited i heard he wrote a western and i looked it up and it happened to be the new walter hill western with uh willem dafoe in it so give me yeah. all that i want all that <laughs> all right so we we're gonna do walter hill soon Perfect. Uh, All right, Devin. It's as always, it's a pleasure. Uh, this was, I really, I mean, I think I, we say this every episode, but I, 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 this was a really fun episode. I think, I think keeping it concise, even though we never, even if we say it's going to be two movies, we end up talking about five movies. That's just the <laughs> way we do, but really getting to get in depth and talk about things. And again, you just, I always uh, love hearing your input on these films because even i always end up learning something so pleasure as always devin you, brother so always a pleasure uh, i love these double features too i can't wait till we do another one i think this this was a this was a good call this was this is something where you set up the premise and i set up the movies and i i think the stars aligned and we picked some good ones i think this is a fun yeah episode. i think it was perfect I, choice yeah i i hope uh, I think a lot of our listeners have probably already seen drive. Uh, if you haven't seen drive, see it right now. Cause it's one of what I consider to be one of the very few actual masterpieces that this century has given us so far. Yeah. I, I agree with that. There's been great films that have come out that are very few masterpieces. And I think even more of our listeners maybe haven't seen thief yet and you owe yeah, it to yourself, absolutely. especially uh, in tribute to James Caan. If you really want to see what he is outside of Sonny Corleone, this is probably the James Conn movie to see. Like I would recommend if someone wanted to know who James Conn is, I would recommend thief before I recommend the Godfather every single day. I agree with that. And again, if you're a fan of the movie heat, this is Michael yes. Mann's first film and definitely sort of was the groundwork the for a lot of the themes. themes yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Well, uh, until next time, uh, make sure to check us out on social media, like us, subscribe to us, Tell your friends about us, uh, please. We could use more listeners. Um, <laughs> I will try to do my best to make sure that we have a little bit more of an online presence, although I know I say that every single time. Uh, but until the next time, always great seeing you, James. And uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Bye. Bye. Good night.